0: Jewish Audio on Chabad.org. Welcome again to In Conversations with Chana. I'm Hannah Weisberg, editor of the Jewishwoman.org. And I'm joined today by a very special guest, Rabbi Avrami Zippel. So it's been a while since you were on here a little while ago.
1: Um, almost coming up on two years ago. It was, uh, sorry, ago. coming up on three years ago. That was yeah. like right when Zoom was getting really popular. It was the height of COVID.
0: Wow. So yeah, so anyone who's watching, you can really watch uh, the rabbi's last interview, but a lot has been happening since then. And can you tell us a little about it? I mean, there's been a court case, a memoir, lots, lots of exciting things. It's been
1: a couple of years. So (laughs) I publicly came forward with my story uh, in in a certain sense in February of 2019. Uh, At that point, I was having to testify in in open court about the fact that I was sexually abused as a child by a family caregiver. And for a number of reasons, the the situation was right and it warranted coming forward publicly. And so I did with a a slight caveat in the sense that it was still an ongoing matter in the courts. And there was a pretty significant limit on, on what I could talk about and what I could talk about, just given the specifics of our justice system. Um, on March 12th, 2020, that entire process wrapped itself up literally uh, hours before the onset of COVID. And in and, and my family, we joke about the fact that the, that hearing, the last hearing was out of COVID. It was literally, um, there was someone who was there in the courtroom who ran off to the Capitol right after the hearing because the governor was holding a press conference in which she was shutting down the state. And once the whole episode wrapped itself up, it, pre- it, pre- it presented me with a question. And that was, so now there's no one that is holding me back from telling the story in its entirety aside from myself. And how much am I really willing and comfortable to tell the story in its entirety? Uh, so that summer, the summer of 2020, as the Zoom circuit was developing, um, I started talking about it more and more just to kind of see if people were receptive to the story. In my mind, you know, I had shared some very basic details the year before, and I was very content to leave it at that. And I came to understand and experience that people were interested in, in hearing the story in all of its corey details and a lot of the ups and downs and, and the journey of everything that had led me to that point. And so, um, after enough arm twisting and cajoling and some incredible pratas, you pratis, know, divine providence, the opportunity presented itself just about a year ago to write a book, to put it all on paper, and to tell it in a really organized fashion and methodical fashion. Um, just after Pesach last year, I was signed to a book deal. And now a year later, I can't believe it's been a year. It's been probably the longest and shortest year of my life. Uh, mm-hmm. A year later, we actually have a, a book, um, which is going to be widely distributed on May 23rd, the week before Shavuos. So I actually got my first batch of copies last night. Can you up
0: again so people can see the name? The book, I'm is, sorry, called- the book
1: is called uh, Not Not What I Expected, uh, A 20-Year tw- Journey to Reclaim a Child's Voice. Um, and I and, that
0: that's a picture of you. And that you is know. a
1: picture of me holding a picture of me. Um, okay. That is a picture um, of, of where I was at in life right before everything started. I'm sorry, I'm trying to manage. You have to go the other way when you're holding something up to a camera. <laughs> and it's... Writing it was a cathartic process. It was also a a mildly terrifying process. And it's interesting. I think a lot of the experiences that you go through in the very beginning of telling your story, and and you you put yourself out there to a certain extent and you wonder to yourself and you worry to yourself, you know, what if no one cares? And and what if the the story turns people off? And you go through four years of that and you should have enough evidence to convince yourself that that's not the case. And Mm. the story is one that, people are receptive to and yet every single time someone will send me a WhatsApp, you know, I just pre-ordered it. There's still a small tinge of that, you know, Oh no, they ordered it. You know, what if they hate it and they never want to talk about it. And so, you know, I I think that's par for the course on a certain level. And I think you go through that and you come to expect that on a certain level and life is about acclimating to that and just, just dealing with that.
0: Well, I, I think there was a lot of points in your story where you were very nervous about your name getting out there. And people knowing, I mean, at one point you said, no matter what you wanted your name to be completely anonymous during the court case, because there's no way that you can face being known as the sexual abuse survivor in your community. And no matter what you would do, that that's how you would be known as. So how did you overcome that? And what, what, why were you so um, against going against being known against your name being disclosed?
1: So, one of the most interesting parts of that whole of that whole journey is i remember where i was the first time i said that and i said that to the police officer who was taking my statement at the very very beginning and i told him you know you, you need you need to promise me that you're going to keep my name out of this and mm-hmm. he understood me he was very validating in a sense he's like i can understand the the complex nature of your community and you have my word and then when the case was handed off from the police department to the prosecutor's office we had the same conversation and they too were very very understanding And and I think on on the first level, that validation in and of itself was so valuable because it gave space for a person to live with their own thoughts for a moment. And I think that for me, one of the powerful lessons that I learned throughout the story is that there is such value in allowing people to develop at their own pace, to to come Mm -hmm. out of something at their own pace. And, you know, those conversations could have gone differently. And, and the cop or the prosecutor could have said, oh, don't sweat it. And if anyone gives you a hard time, you know, you don't worry about them. Um, and and that wasn't the attitude at all. And I think that just the the validation of that concern in and of itself was really empowering and comforting on some level. As I told all of those parties and all of those conversations, I was quite certain that should this story ever get out publicly, that would be the only thing that would define my life hmm. with amongst my friends and and family and wider community that that would be it in fact I said to the prosecutor these words I said you know one day the day might come that I will cure cancer but if the story gets out anything which I might accomplish in life will be of third importance to to this dynamic and ultimately that wall broke down brick by brick Hmm. Uh, I told one person a local person here in my community. I, you know, I'm sitting at my desk here in my office. It was the spring of 2018. I was sitting in this very chair, and all of a sudden, court dates were something which were a reality on my calendar.
0: Hmm. And
1: when a court date is scheduled, no one really checks with you if you're free that morning. You know, they tell you there will be a hearing, and if you want to attend, great. But that's when it is. And there was someone here in my office, a member of the community who I was working with on a project at that point. And I said to her that I had to reschedule a meeting that we had. I had to reschedule it, and. She was like, oh, no problem. What, do you have something else that morning? And I don't know why I told the truth in that moment. I said, yeah, I have a court date. And she was like, oh, you know, is everything okay? I said, yeah, um, someone hurt me as a child and they're in court. And all of a sudden, you know, the, the alarm, five alarm fire goes off in your head. And you're like, oh, take that back. Just just have a doctor's appointment. You know, That, that, that could have been a perfectly plausible explanation. And she reacted with such empathy. And such mm-hmm. understanding. And so, you know, one brick came off the wall. But that one brick gave me the confidence to be honest with someone the next week when I had to mm-hmm. explain an absence. And another brick came off the wall. And 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 slowly the wall came down. And what was most fascinating when that wall came down is what I had feared and anticipated is precisely what happened. In amongst my friends and family and, and wider community, it's exactly what my Claim to fame is at the yes, moment.
0: That's what I was just gonna ask you. you their, like
1: reaction, their reaction is no different than I had anticipated. I think the fundamental change was not in their mind, but in mine.
0: So you for, don't mind? You don't mind for being the long,
1: for the longest time I had been daunted by that reality of, mm-hmm. you know, what if they think that about me? And I think that I had done enough internal healing to develop the attitude of, well, if they if they think that about me and if and if they see my life as that one dimensional. You know, that's that's really unfortunate for them. Because I, I'm very comfortable being in that space. But you know, I feel like my life is, you know, multicolored and it's and it's got a lot going for it. And if someone wants to live somewhat locked into that perspective, I, I can't I can't fight that. But, you know, that's going to be on a certain sense that's going to be their loss and not mine.
0: Mm. And
1: I think that it, it really goes to show that it was it was my own attitude that needed to develop around this conversation and not anybody else's.
0: Interesting. So it's interesting, as I was reading your book, it, you're not the typical, or what we would consider the typical, you know, survivor of abuse. Um, You hit it your entire life, you were an extremely high achiever. You know, you didn't fall off the you you, you gave no signs, outward signs that you were being abused. Um, In fact, you were excelling at everything that you took on. And you wrote, I couldn't afford to be a normal, average, run-of-the-mill student. Deep down, I feared that if I wasn't seen as the best or the brightest, I'd be found out for who I really was, a fraud, a fake, immoral, unclean, unfit to be a rabbi. So was this a cry for help from a broken soul? And what did that feel like? Why did you feel this need to be such a high achiever?
1: You know, I told this story before, and I, I it's one that I really relate to. Um, about a year and a half ago, I was on a panel about around child safety. And there were a number of us on the panel and there was Q&A from the crowd and there was a parent in the audience who asked, you know, what are the red flags? What are the, some of the symptoms that you can snuff out if your child might be struggling? And one of the panelists just, you know, read off a list and, 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 and a correct list and a comprehensive list of troubling behaviors and physical symptoms and emotional symptoms and he was really harping on you know if your kid starts declining academically, if they're not performing in school, if their grades are suffering, you know these are important things to look out for, and it was not the most hamish panel. You know, it wasn't like you know I'll say something, you know like you know, and and I really thought about this and I and I broke every protocol and I and I jumped out of line and I said yeah, I'd really like to add something if that's okay. Your child struggling academically is absolutely a symptom of their struggling in a wider capacity, and your child succeeding academically in an unhealthy fashion is equally as alarming and mm-hmm. as dangerous if if a child starts to feel pressured to excel at at the highest possible level and reacts in a very viscerally emotional way to anything less than perfection that should be as much of a warning sign than if their grades just go off a cliff you uh, know
0: so you were doing that to get away from yourself? Too? I was,
1: yeah. As I've said in, in more Jewish that was not at a at a Jewish friend, but I said as a Jewish friend. I said, you know, some people imagine that survivors of childhood trauma only know how to drown their sorrows in alcohol. I drowned my sorrows in Gemara. You know, I literally, you know, and, and the same way we imagine, you know, a young person who's struggling and they sit there with the bottle and they just you know take a deep swig and try to and try to mm-hmm. bury all the pain in that drink think of that exact same scenario, the same pain and the same desire to escape and the same unhealthiness. And instead of a bottle, it's a nice fat Gemara. Wow. And, and that was my that's reality. It's
0: important to, to, to realize that and to know that that's, that's a possible way of reacting.
1: I agree. And, and I think it's, you know, it, it goes, obviously we want every child to succeed and we encourage our mm-hmm. children to succeed. And, you know, so I, I don't want to ruin it for the audience but you know, my my grandfather was your uncle you know, you knew him as well as almost as almost as well as Absolutely. i knew him and you know we as as kids you know we would call him up on the phone in toronto and you know, i got 101 on a test and, you know there was you couldn't have gotten a 102 and you know it was it was part of our childhood and it was who he was and and we raised children in that environment a little bit but but there comes a time where we i think as parents and as adults and educators we need to realize there's a line and and if a child recoils in horror at a 98 right? Perhaps it's worth a deeper look. Perhaps it's worth trying to understand what is going on beneath the surface for that child and why they have such a visceral reaction to that.
0: Why they feel their self-esteem is being represented in that number.
1: And and, and why why 98 is the end of their world. You know mm-hmm. wh- wh- What is wrong with less than perfection? If a child lives in a world where there's that absolute need to maintain that veneer of perfection, why is that? Mm-hmm. And, and what happens to them if that facade cracks a little bit why is that reacted to like that
0: right because underneath it you say beneath my smile behind my words i was convinced god hated me i'm such a failure such a waste of life god must hate me what was that life like and do you still feel that god hates you how did you heal
1: the way i the way i put it both in the book and and in conversation i i lived for a very long time believing that god hated me um and I thought he was very justified in doing so. Uh, you know, the Almighty God is very fair. He lives in a very mm-hmm. black and white world. And from my perspective, not knowing that I should not feel the shame and responsibility around what was happening, I believe that I deserved all of the blame. And as such, it was completely entitled for the Almighty to hate me in that sense. Uh, that's a pretty lonely place to be in. Thinking that God hates you is um, is that's not funny. not very yeah not very pleasant. Uh, and then I went to therapy. And in therapy, I found out that the things that had happened to me were not my fault. They were somebody else's fault. A Crime had been done to me. And I discovered at the beginning of the therapeutic experience that I had thought that thinking that God hates me is the loneliest place in the world. Turns out there's a more lonely place. And that is thinking that God just ignored you. Mm-hmm. you know, at, at some point, he was supposed to have your back and he was supposed to be watching out for you. And then a bunch of stuff happened that he just let slide. That you'd like to believe that the Almighty God doesn't really allow for children to suffer in this world, and yet on his watch, all of this happened. And and, and then you really kind of run, and then you really run into the dynamic of you know it's 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 not just God, but you know I'm I'm a card carrying chabad shliach, and I am the one who's responsible to to sell God to my community, to, to encourage people in my community that having a relationship and a connection with God is the most beautiful and valuable and important thing you can do with your life. And God is all seeing and all knowing and all capable and all powerful. And there's this little voice in the back of your head and goes, uh-huh, is that? And let's go. So what happened on the days in question was, did he step away from his desk for a moment? You know, Did, his, did your file miss the pile? Mm-hmm. Where, where'd he go? And it's a tough place to be in. It's a a lonelier place to be in. And I think that ultimately the
0: the reality- That's a really tough question that so many people have in their own lives, you know, and whatever they're going through.
1: And and, How do
0: you you answer that?
1: And I think that that, you know, you mentioned that these are tough questions that people have. At some point, you come to acknowledge that, you know, welcome to the human race, Mm -hmm. you know, you have dealt with an inordinate amount of pain and suffering in your life, just like countless others have. And if you want to have a relationship with the almighty God where he, you know, checks in with you every Monday and Thursday to justify all of his actions, you may have come to the wrong place because ours is not a a faith practice where every time something goes wrong, we send off a letter and, and the almighty God sends back five pages, you know, perfectly typed, letting us know, why he did things. That's, that's not the journey of faith that any of us strive to be on. I think the journey of faith instead is we find ourselves in these sorts of situations and we turn to God and we say to, we say to the Almighty, okay, fine, I'm here. What do you want from me now? You've put me here, probably for good reason. What did you have in mind with all this? When you gamed all of this out in, in the you know, all-knowing mind of yours, where did you see this going? And how can I align my life to be in line with what you had hoped for? And the way I put it in the book is that at a certain point, I stopped turning to the Almighty and saying, why me? And I started asking him instead, why me? You, you, this happens to a lot of people, but on some level, you wanted it to happen to me. You, you saw something there that I could somehow contribute to this tapestry. You, you saw the world being unique with my having gone through these sorts of experiences. If you just give me a wee bit of perspective into what that is. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I think it helps reconcile a lot of those lonely feelings. And I think that as a Yid, you, you start to find a place for yourself in, in the world of the Almighty. And you start to find a role or the role that he has for you. And you let it all unroll from there. And and ultimately you'll never have all of the answers to all of the questions. And all you can hope to do is, is live every day in alignment with what exactly it was that he had in mind for you and continues to have in mind for you.
0: So what do you think he had in mind for you?
1: I can't say for certain, but at this point, I have decent reason to have come to the conclusion that he felt, feels that there is a difference that I can make in this world and in, in a very unique way, given my circumstances. Mm-hmm. And there's part of me that still wonders on, on, on dark days, on lonely days. Was it only possible to bring about that difference through all of this pain? You know, this couldn't have happened mm-hmm. in an easier fashion. And again, you know, chop that up to a question that you'll never really have answers to. But at some point, you really begin to to hope to find the the path that the Almighty has for you in life. And you want things to break down exactly the way they did so that you'd find yourself in that moment at that place to be able to make a unique difference, uh, you know, to, to put it in the words that were really working for me at the time, specifically as a, as a shliach, you know, if I went about my life having dedicated myself to living a life that the almighty God wants from me, at some point I should probably be open to the possibility that living the life that he wants from me would be done on his terms and not on mine. Really allow me. I, I had, Everything worked out how this was all going to go from a very, very young age. I knew exactly how life would look like in the sense of that of how I would make a difference. And at some point, life comes to you. God comes to you and says, surprise, it's not going to look like that at all. It's going to be very different, in fact. And we spend so much time pushing back on that. And we as human beings, we spend so much time wanting to commit ourselves to a godly life, but on our terms. Right. But, but in, in our specifics, from our paradigm. And in a certain sense, I think all you've got left to do is to turn to the almighty God and be like, OK, you know what? You win. You want this done a certain way, but we'll do it your way. We'll do it your way. And and I think that's that's a choice. It's a choice you make every day. It's a, it's a mindset you have to plug yourself into every single day. and And you hope to to find some some meaning in your life through that
0: is that why you called your book not what i expected it's
1: very much why i called my book not what i expect so so actually i, I we didn't end up including the story in the book but I'll, I'll give you a little uh a brownie point when i was starting you know i talked before about the the wall coming down brick by brick um when i started telling people there, there was a, a particular teacher of mine from my yeshiva days that i really wanted to tell this this was the person that, that i almost told while it was all going on we had developed that that level of closeness and authenticity and yet i couldn't tell him you know it was i was that Mm -hmm. shut off and when i was telling people i wanted him to be one of the first and so uh, i got his home number and one night i called him up i said look i i feel like in all the years that you've known me i haven't been honest with you and so i want to be honest with you and kind of said everything and it was quiet for a long minute and after that minute he First thing he says is, "Wow, that was not what I expected to hear no. from you." <laughs> so it was that moment that kind of was the genesis of that title. But in all honesty, I think that plugging into that mindset and and living in that headspace was born from that moment, which you know kind of became an entire an entire mantra, you know, an entire path in life and, and a way to live one's life. And it really was the motivation for the title. Yeah,
0: interesting. I mean, you also write about how the Rebbe. Always told you to fill a void, and this was your way of filling a void. Um, you want to expand on that a little bit?
1: So, I live in a very religious town. Not not my religion per se, but you know, people here are knowledgeable. You know, they they, they enjoy sharing ideas, biblical ideas, and so one of the things that when I moved here, you know, I was having you know, New rabbi was in town. People came to meet you, Rabbi. Tell us about your favorite Just biblical Let passage.
0: everyone know that you live in Utah. I right? live in Salt Lake City. <laughs> yeah, City. Lake City. That was, that's an
1: important caveat. Right. <laughs> I live in Salt Lake City, and um, and I had to quickly identify with what was my favorite biblical passage. And I remember I had a conversation with someone. Right. It was right around Purim. It was the first year I moved here. It's 2015, and that year I learned um, a paring of the Rebbe from Purim. And the Rebbe talks about the fact that there is this fascinating dialogue that takes place in the Megillah in the book of Esther. This conversation, you know, a a lot of the Megillah kind of is told in generalities. You know, we we skip through episodes somewhat somewhat generally. and, And then there are certain moments that are zeroed in on. And there's, you know, really powerful back and forth dialogue. And in the fifth chapter of the Megillah, there's this powerful conversation that is literally told to us verbatim between Mordechai and Esther. And Esther finds out that Mordecai is sitting in the center of town wearing sackcloth and ashes, and she panics and she asks Mordechai what's up. And Mordecai comes back and says, Look, there's this decree against the Jewish people, and we're we're frightened by it. But good news, the good news is we have someone on the inside of the palace that is going to save us all. Hmm. That is you. So, you know, <laughs> get <Stop>. to work. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. And and Esther's like, hey, hang on, hang on. That doesn't work like that. You know, hmm. I don't I don't have carte blanche access to the king and and life just doesn't work like that. You know, the same threat of, of annihilation that you would go through if you walked in unannounced, I would go through the same. And so this is not so simple. And Mordechai responds to Esther in that moment. And the Rebbe points out that what Mordecai says to Esther in that moment doesn't really fit the dialogue. It's not a conversation between two people that's kind of a volley back and forth. You know, they're parrying point for point. Mordecai makes, makes an argument that doesn't really respond to what Esther is saying. And Mordecai says, look, you know, maybe you're right. But have you ever considered that this is the moment that you were made for? Hmm. And well, Mordecai doesn't say to Esther, he doesn't say, look, come on, Esther, let's talk about this. You know, let's really get down to the logistics of it. You could do this and you could do that and you could maneuver the situation this way and that way. Mordecai turns to Esther and says, look, I don't disagree with you. You are in a pickle. You're in a tough spot. But Maybe that's exactly the tough spot that you were created to be in. You know, you're, you're this nice, modest Jewish girl who's being raised by her cousin and you're whisked off to the palace. You ever stop to think why?
0: Yeah. You
1: ever think for a moment what the grand master plan of the universe had in mind for you, this nice girl who then out of all the women in the, in, in the kingdom wins this beauty pageant and is now is Saul's queen? What does everyone want from you? Maybe this is what is wanted from you. Maybe this is the void that you were meant to step into. And if you don't step into this void, says Mordechai, no worries, somebody else will. You know, the Jewish people are not going to perish on your watch. Somebody else will. And maybe you'll have missed your moment. And so for me, learning the way the Rebbe approached that conversation, which I think is really a microcosm of the Rebbe's view of of the universe, of Judaism's view of the universe. You know, if you see a space, a situation, a dynamic that is not being addressed in that moment, there's two things you can do about that. You can fold your arms and lean back in your chair and be like, oh, that is that's interesting. That's very unfortunate. Very, very mm-hmm. unfortunate that that situation is not being addressed. Or you can ask yourself, why, why did I find out about this? Mm-hmm. How, why did this come to my attention? There's so many people who could have Find out about this. And likely there's so many people that know about it. And yet the situation hasn't changed. The status quo remains the same. Why why me? Why do I know about it? Maybe this is my moment. And and I I
0: interesting you you write in the book how you Googled. You know, male sexual abuse, male Orthodox Jewish sexual abuse survivor, and you didn't find anyone. Who Google, was-
1: Google literally. I, I, you know, I don't. I, it was the only time that I I can ever remember in my life. You know, usually you Google one thing and Google will be like, "Well, we didn't find this, but can right. we suggest? Can we? could we? Uh, can we advertise this to you?" And Google literally came back to me and was like, "Nope, sorry, yeah, yeah. try it yeah. again, nothing." Mm-hmm. And in that moment, you think to yourself, like, "Oh wow, this is." an unrepresented space. Hmm. Maybe there's a reason why I know. A real it. void. Yeah.
0: the real void that you decided to fill and you fill it by becoming an advocate, telling your story, helping people.
1: You fill it by, I think more than anything, I think you fill it by being a, a Dugmachai. You fill it by being a role model and you, you fill right. it by, by I think modeling the sort of life that one can have as a survivor. Hmm. Um, I think it's, 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 it's the greatest way to go about any sort of dynamic in life. It's interesting. I was, I was involved in a conversation just this morning. Um, there was a, a, a news clipping from about two decades ago. In a, in a more observant community, some of the rabbis in the community decided to put down communal standards around simchas that were happening in their community. People were going into debt to make bar mitzvahs and weddings and, and engagement parties. And so the rabbis came along and said, you know, these are the standards um, you must abide by when making a happy occasion in our community. And, you know, things make sense. And then there's two lines at the bottom of the paragraph. And at the bottom of the paragraph, it says, um, if these standards are not met, we will not participate in the happy occasions with a long list of the communal rabbis. And there's a small asterisk. And it says, barring unusual or extremely necessary situations. Hmm. And, and we were having this conversation, a number of us, you know, within the rabbinate, within Jewish leadership of a sentence like that destroys all the good work you're doing. You know, the idea of we expect certain things from people and, and we'll abide by those things sometimes, most of the times, you know, sure. barring situations that are on our own terms. Well, how can you expect anybody to live by the standards? Yeah. And so, you know, it, it was a conversation that I was literally having this morning, but I think that you know, for me, when when thinking about being a, a public survivor within the community, there are a lot of a lot of things that I'd like to see as to how survivors are, are are treated in this community. And I think for me, the most important thing that I could do was to model those behaviors. Was to was to do the things and live the life the way I feel like a, a survivor should should go about their life, and, and, and the way I think a survivor can go about their life. And I think in any sort of dynamic, you're going to find yourself the most important thing that you can do in any environment is always lead by example, lead from the front, provide the display of of the behaviors that you want to see others take. And I I think it's a, it's a good rule for life. It's really
0: interesting in the book you wrote about how there was this billboard of you and the the mayor. A senator and a musician. Right. And a musician. And they were all very, you know, people who have great achievements and great accomplishments. And this is what people can see that a survivor can become. You know, it doesn't have to be somebody who's broken, but this is what a survivor can be.
1: And 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 to me, I think that that's the most powerful message that we can send to young people who are struggling in a similar situation. We can talk about abstract information. You know, we can we can publish billboards that have statistics that, you know, uh, as the famous saying goes, 98% of people don't care about statistics. But we can we can put up a billboard that says, you know, 64% of survivors go on to do X, Y, and Z. Or we could put up three faces of people in town. And, you know, look, here's a random tidbit of information. Here are three people that live here in town. You may have seen them, may have interacted with them, you may have met them. And they're survivors, and they're okay with that. And they're going about their life, and they're trying to lead productive lives. So can you. It's not about a number anymore, and it's not about... Abstract outside information. It's about it's about people, and it's and it creates something that you hope other people can can relate to and can live up to.
0: And I, and I guess it's a broader message, not only for survivors as well, but survivors of any kind of abuse or any kind of difficulty or hardship or challenge. I mean, particularly survivors of of, of sexual abuse, but of anyone, you know, you can. There's a morning after that, which is really brings me to you. You, you know, this beautiful quote that you wrote. Um, you you were driving in your car to decide whether or not to take your story public, and a song quoting Psalm 92 came on, and it said, to proclaim your kindness in the morning and our faith in you at night. Those words spoke to me. There are mornings, times of light, clarity, and certainty. In the mornings, we proclaim God's kindness. But then there are also nights, times of darkness, confusion, and uncertainty. In the night, we may not feel the kindness. We may not have much left to give but we can have faith, faith that if we just keep going through the night, the morning will come again. So I thought that was so beautiful. How can a survivor of abuse hold on to their faith after experiencing their horrors?
1: So that car ride in question was was the afternoon before it was all supposed to go down. And I would say that when thinking about the the totality of the anxiety and the paranoia around the topic, that 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 afternoon was probably at the all time high. You know, this was, you know, you, you're, your your feet are at the edge of the diving board. It's either right now. Jump or don't jump. You know, there's there's not a lot of there's not a lot of plank left to walk. Um, and I, I you know I, it was it was my, it was on my Spotify playlist and it came on <laughs> and it, it came to me in that moment that it is easy in times of affluence and prosperity and, and happiness to get up and proclaim the almighty's involvement in your life mm. and to thank the almighty for his presence and his blessings in your life that's that's easy and we do that and you know with with great regularity and at times it is more difficult to do that when when the rubber hits the road i had a conversation a couple of weeks ago with a good friend of mine um, also Chabad Rabbi, and he was sharing with me a, a profoundly personal struggle that he was going through. And I said to him, you know, I, I tried to you know, validate the pain that he was in, and I said to him, so let me ask you a question. What, what would you say right now if Bob, you're the biggest donor in your community, a guy you're really close with, called you up and shared this news with you? What would you say to him?
0: Show sure, the news that what that he was whatever he was
1: going through, Bob was going through. You know, you, you, you were on the other side of the phone call, right? And this guy, and he says to me, he says, "Yeah, I, I, I'd, I'd be sad for him, and I'd be sad with him." I said, "Yeah, okay, I, I tried to do that." And he said, "And I don't know, I, I, I tell him that the Almighty has a plan for him."
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I said, "Great. Well, Bob wants you to know the Almighty has a plan for you too." And again, it, it's easy for us to tell the other person, you know, in, in their right. moments of darkness, you know, have faith, man. But at that point, on, on a certain sense, I, I think that you know, the, the real test of a munafari, the real test of, a test of having faith, is when it's all you have. It, it, it's very easy to tap into that when faith is there amongst a number of other blessings that you have in your life. But when mm-hmm. you're in a situation where you know, your choices are rock and hard place, mm-hmm. and, and the only tool you feel like you have at hand is your faith that too is an accomplishment you know that that too is, is a gift from the almighty and it, and it should be recognized by us with the same vigor and the same excitement as we would out of a place of of affluence and generosity and prosperity and so that was something which i felt in the moment and i'm, I'm grateful that it, that it it carried me through You know, it really kind of carried the day and, and allowed it was something which i was able to tap into throughout this process but again, I think it goes back to the idea that faith in this instance looks like turning to the almighty God and saying, I don't know what you want from me, but I really am holding on to the fact that you want something from me. I don't know what that is, but I am sure that if I keep on doing my part, you'll show me what that is. So let's do this. You yeah, know,
0: that, I, that shows God's confidence in you.
1: Right. Um, uh, there's, um, you know, speak, we talked about Billboards, there's, I actually don't know the the denomination, but there's a group here in town that put up billboards a long time ago. Um, I'm not sure if you believe in God, he sure believes in you,
0: Uh,
1: which, which was something which I really, I really relate to. I think it's a very Jewish idea. I don't know if it was a Jewish organization, but it comes from somewhere. But you know, that idea of, again, I don't know what you want from me, but I trust that you're going to show me. So Mm -hmm. here we go. Show me what you want. And, and, that, that gave you strength in those moments.
0: You know, you you, you spoke about pressing charges against this nanny, this caregiver who abused you, and you you say that the reason why was not even so much to give her jail time. It wasn't about that. It wasn't about punishing her. It was about being heard. What does that mean? Why did you decide to press charges? So,
1: I think at the most basic level, I decided to to report because there was a sense of injustice in the world. Yeah, At a certain level, when you go for so long thinking that you have done something wrong and you're finally given to correctly and properly understand that you haven't done something wrong, Mm -hmm. something very wrong has been done to you, you feel like there's injustice in your life. And injustice is something which warrants correction. It warrants justice. So I reported, Um, if I'm being totally frank, when I reported the odds, if I would have Asked someone that morning, you know, I'm going to go c- cold call the Salt Lake City Police Department and tell them about something which happened roughly two decades ago. What are the odds of this story continuing past today? Just given what we know about how the criminal justice system works, I, the odds were maybe one in 10,000. It, yeah. It's a delayed report. It's from a long time ago. There's no evidence. And so I reported. And I write about this in the book, I talk about this publicly. I reported to check the box. I reported more than anything to go back to my mental health professional and say, "See, I did it. I did it. You know, let's <laughs> let's close that chapter, and move on to the next phase of healing. I did what you asked of me. and And then, at some point, an investigation did ensue and and it, and it developed. And as I write about you, when my abuser was arrested, it was Arif Pesach. I was not in town when it happened. We had already gone to my wife's family for Pesach. And the first moment where I really realized what this journey was going to entail, I'm standing on the porch of my in-law's house and the world is crumbling around me. And I'm kind of taking some space and my father-in-law comes outside. And bear in mind, my father-in-law at this point had known about this for two days. It's, it's a lot to reality check for wow. everybody. And he comes outside and he puts his arm around my shoulders and he says, I just heard about the arrest. How do you feel? You, you feel all better?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I turned around and I said, no, <laughs> no, I don't. You know, I'm not sure if this was supposed to trigger some sort of happy release for me, but it didn't. And, mm-hmm. and anybody who thinks that it did or that it should or that it would, I want a refund because that's not that's not what happened.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and in and, and that moment, everything kind of crystallized all at once. Healing does not necessarily come from harsh sentences. The Healing doesn't come from people being in handcuffs. It, healing is something which is a road that you go down personally. And and people don't have to suffer and, and lengthy sentences don't have to be handed out for you to heal, for you to, to move past that. And it was really in that moment that I came to understand how profoundly personal mm-hmm. that journey is. And the system was going to go ahead and do whatever it was going to do. And, and it was, you know, going to go off be the criminal justice system, but healing was going to be a personal journey from that point forward. And, and I'm I'm grateful to have worked with professionals, the prosecution team and others who were very clear about that with me. You know, we want this system to bring you a sense of closure. And so we're going to determine our path and the actions that we take based on that guiding principle, based on that North Star. If this feels just to you, then we'll pursue it. If it doesn't, then what are we? Then why are we doing this? You know, we want right. this to bring about closure for you, and it was it was important.
0: So for- that was, it's interesting because at the end, you actually forgave your abuser, and you said you don't want that anymore in your head. You want to continue. She's had enough power over you in your thoughts, and now you just want to go about leaving her behind and going about living your life and helping others. How did you find it within you to, to actually find this forgiveness?
1: I think, I think in society, we understand forgiveness is something which is almost accrued. It's deserved. Mm -hmm. We will forgive someone if we feel like they have merited forgiveness. Forgiveness is something which we award to others, given their performance, given their behavior, if they have met the criteria that we put in place, then they are worthy of this mm-hmm. tremendous gift that we provide to them called forgiveness. I think there was a moment where I came to realize that, for me personally, that couldn't have been further from the truth. Mm-hmm. And for me personally, forgiveness is something which I give myself. Forgiveness is something which benefits the person giving it far more than the person receiving it. Mm-hmm. And I could forgive because it would make me feel better, and it would allow me to live my life from that. So, what,
0: so what does forgiveness mean to you? Forgiveness
1: mm-hmm. for me means release. Forgiveness for me means the decision to not hold on to resentment.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I, I I firmly believe that given what given what's happened to me in life, I am entitled to a just a bucket load of resentment. If if I wanted to utilize it, if I wanted to tap into it. I would have it there at my disposal that I could just dig from every single day. And every single morning I could wake up and go to the corner to just this, this chest of resentment and scoop some into my cup and carry it with me the entire day. And, and I don't think anybody would have any claims to me that I'm not entitled to that resentment. Absolutely. And if I were if I were to do that, you know, all the power to me, the only person that I would be hurting would be myself. The, mm-hmm. the, the subject of my resentment could be hundreds of miles away would have no idea that I was feeling resentful towards them in that moment, and, and they certainly would not be suffering the aftershocks of my resentment. I carry it around, and I have to deal with it. and And for me, forgiveness meant deciding to step away from that. I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not going to be upset about it anymore. And, and if I am, that's that's my problem that I have to deal with. I for me, being resentful is just not worth it for me. And, and I want to forgive on my terms and on nobody else's terms.
0: Wow. That's very powerful because we all have people that we do not forgive or we have resentments or anger against who have hurt us. And that's a very powerful way of looking at forgiveness.
1: I appreciate that. It was, it was a a difficult thing to do for sure. And the most powerful part of the, of the story is that um, my abuser beforehand had not asked for said forgiveness. and, And in fact, at the actual hearing where I, where, where I read and that she statement, for the she, she didn't know what to do with herself in that moment. Um right. But, and, 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 again, I think for me, it reinforces that, that, you know, I, I will forgive because I choose to forgive and, and nobody else needs to do anything in line with that.
0: And it means she no longer has power over you, over your right. bond. Group.
1: Right. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not going because to. You wrote a lot
0: that, that, you know, the abuse is, is much more than than a sexual attraction. It's more, this abuse of power. And I found that interesting that it has more to do with power than anything else. Can you explain that a little bit?
1: So I, I wrote about that somewhat extensively in, in, in my impact statement that when when this case began and it became evident that this case was going to trial, the prosecutor understood, a remarkable, remarkable woman, she understood that she had an uphill battle to fight over here. You know, on one hand, you have my abuser was 70 when she went to trial, as, as we talked about it back then. My abuser could have walked out of the courtroom and walked across the hall to a grandmother of the year pageant and would have fit in seamlessly in either room.
0: Mm-hmm. And you've
1: got to convince nine perfect strangers that this woman did unspeakable things for a very long time. How and why? For, for starters, when all this was going on my abuser was happily married had three kids of her own mm-hmm. if we think about sexual violence as something which stems from romance or sexual attraction or connection in any of those in any of those terms you're going to get you're going to convince nobody of this this is this is just bad news and i think what the prosecutor did so masterfully was her ability to communicate to the jury that this has got very little to do with romance, love, attraction. This is the sort of environment where an adult wields a certain power over mm-hmm. a child. And the reason why an adult will do that in most instances is because they had a power deficiency in their own life at some point. Mm. And the only place they can try and take that back and try to settle the, settle the score and balance the scales is to take it back from someone who it's easy to take their power. It is far easier to take a child's power than an adult's power. And that is why that sort of person does this sort of thing. It's, it's not about romance or attraction or love. It is about who is someone that I can wield that power over and feel the power that was taken from me at such a young age.
0: Mm.
1: And and sadly, that is why, by, you know, very often a lot of these situations are cyclical. And and people mm. who were once hurt as children, sadly, Do the same, will go on to continue because. The power was taken from them, so they go and take it from somebody else, who goes mm-hmm. on to take it from somebody else, and on it goes. And and at some point, someone decides to pursue healing and says, "Okay, enough." You know, right. I, you know, pow, power was taken from me, and I can reclaim that, and I don't need to hurt any children in the pro- in the in the process. Well, and right. and that's you know that's that's, that's really how we the, break the cycle. Yeah.
0: yeah. I found also very interesting when you wrote about Elizabeth Smart, how she was a, she was a survivor who came to see you. Um, she came to, to see you in a coffee shop. And you wrote, I'll never forget the moment she walked into the coffee shop on a cold January morning, carrying her baby in a car seat. If you want to make an impact on someone's life, show up to coffee in the middle of a snowstorm, baby in hand. That's advocacy. Sit down with someone who needs a friend. How can people help someone going through abuse or through any difficult situation?
1: I mean, imagine what you would want if you were in that sort of situation. Um,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: You know, we live in an age where more and more we place more of an emphasis on opinion over experience we we give a lot of credence to people who have certain beliefs around certain topics, as opposed to elevating the voices of those who have been through those sorts of topics and want to inform policy or, or practice around mm-hmm. those areas that they have been through themselves. Uh, on the day in question, when Elizabeth Smart came to meet me at a coffee shop in Park City, which is after she had taken out of her time to just call me out of the blue, Elizabeth Smart is, was an, an accomplished multiple time New York times bestselling author uh, she has a, a remarkable foundation here in town. She's got a full calendar beyond the fact that she had a newborn back when the story happened. And and she knew of someone in need and she got in the car and she went to Starbucks. a stranger
0: she, who she just happened to have heard about. Right? And,
1: and right. You know, a mutual friend put us in touch and she went to Starbucks and she met a total stranger. That's, that's healing. That's mm. how, you know, we, we, we rectify, you know, pain and, and suffering in this world. And, and that. That coffee changed my life forever. I mean, mm-hmm. It really influenced how I see advocacy, uh, how I see you know taking time and resources and energy to deal to deal with survivors. And you know, I'm I'm fortunate um, to to be able to do a lot of work in the advocacy space. And, and people who know me well, and, and my wife, and, and and others who who know my my time and my schedule know that you know there will be all sorts of important things to do. Uh, my my cell phone number is readily available in, in a dozen places. And if a call or a text or a DM on Instagram comes in from a total stranger, all of that fades away in, in the space of that.
0: Wow. Because
1: all these lofty That's ideals of, of advocacy and we're going to make the world better for children uh, should should pale in comparison to the opportunity to actually make the world better for a child or or a child, someone who was once a child. And so that, that was a coffee that that gave me perspective that I can never move away from. That, that is, that's I guess big.
0: it just expands your definition of a shliach. just show up and be there for whoever, whoever's in need.
1: And, 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 you know, just to kind of expand on that point, I think a lot of people, a lot of you know, p- parents I speak to, so, you know, my, my, my kid disclosed to me and I didn't know what to say, or what do I say if my child discloses to me? And most often the answer I'll provide is don't, don't say anything.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: No one wants to hear what you have to say at that moment. What, the child in your life wants to ascertain that moment is, can you listen?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, can, you know, so often we'll be in conversations, we'll share something with somebody and we'll still be mid-sentence. And we already see the wheels in their head turning, mm-hmm. they're formulating a response before we've even finished saying what it is that we need to say. Uh, you know, my, my wife laughs. I have this, this annoying habit on WhatsApp if I listen to a voice note. Start typing out a response to the voice note <laughs> mid listening to the voice note. But very, very often someone will send me a minute long voice note and I'll write it. I'll, I'll text them a response to the first 30 seconds. And then what they said in the second 30 seconds <laughs> will will deem that whole response completely you know, useless. We do that as human beings. You know, someone's mm-hmm. in the middle of sharing something very profound and we're already piecing together just this award-winning response. And all they want is just listen. Just listen. Just, just hear them out. Just hear them out. Mm-hmm. And and that was that was a coffee that changed my life.
0: Just listen and just be there. Just show up.
1: Car seat mm-hmm. in hand.
0: Okay. Uh, Remy, can you share us with us? Do you have the book there again? Can I sure you- do. Okay. Not What I Expected.
1: It is available on Amazon. Oh, well, my goodness. I'm going to get this in the frame. There we go. It's available on Amazon. Um, we can include a, a link in the show notes. Not What I Expected of Remy Zippel. It'll be widely released in just over a month, May 23rd. Um, And I'm I'm excited. I'm excited. I'm you know
0: I'm parts and, and terrified, parts
1: excited, but I'm excited for for the world to see it.
0: Wow. What was what what would you like people to hear from your story in a nutshell? I mean, there's so many different components, but what's what's the one thing that you really want people to take away? What I'd story, like them to take the away, I
1: think, is, is 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 kind of is in line with what we were talking about so much of this conversation is. You know, I I came into my adult life with a very clear definition of what it would look like. And it turns out that truly living a life of making an impact and making a difference is not at all what I expected. And I think what I would encourage people to take away from the book is there's a good chance the same is likely true in your life, you know, that specifically the lane that you had in mind for yourself might not be the best place for you to make a very unique difference in this world. And I think that the world becomes a better place when each of us shuts up and listens to, to a certain extent and is, is open and willing to finding where that lane for us is. And, and it might be very different than what we once expected, but is ready to, to step into that void and make that difference in the world.
0: Wow. I, I think all of us feel at some point in time, hey, that was not what I expected. But what you're doing is taking the not what I expected and making it very much the path that you're meant to be running.
1: I think that's life on some level.
0: Thank you so much for joining us. Rabbi. Thank you so much. from Salt Lake City Salt Lake City, Utah with his book Not What I Expected. I thought the book was amazing. I read it and like I couldn't put it down. So not only was it teaching such important valid points, it also gave it, it's also a thrill reader. You know, you just can't put it down. You just keep turn, turning the pages. So you did a fantastic job Thank you. and I it means a lot wish you I continued by. success in all that you do in your many, many roles as a shliach advocate memoirist um, speaker and many more. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us.